Well, there you go, our intro music to the Fuzzy Logic Science Show here on 2XX. Now, we humans can argue about pretty well anything, whether it's food or politics, religion, sport. But one thing we all agree on is we love food. Now, it's a funny thing, or a tragic thing perhaps, that while the world's population will grow by about 12,000 over the course of the next hour, we are degrading our productive land at a frightening rate, and we need to feed 12,000 extra mouths in one hour. And while that's happening, we are wasting a prodigious amount of food. Now, to discuss food and matters arising from food, food health, environmental health, we have two researchers here from the University of Canberra. And Dr. Roe McFarlane is an Associate Professor of Public Health at the University of Canberra. Morning, Roe. Good morning. And uh, Associate Assistant Professor Bethany Turner from the School of Global Studies at the University of Canberra. Good morning, Bethany. Good morning. Now, Bethany, we'll start with you. How much food are we actually wasting now? It's a great question, Rod. Uh, it's estimated to be around one-third of the food that's actually produced that we end up wasting. Uh, however, the data is extremely iffy that we have to actually quantify these things. It's very difficult in terms of the definitions that we uh, ascribe to what we might call food loss versus what we might call food waste. And this is something that the FAO is looking at um, at this point in time, how we actually gather that data. But the data is also very tricky to actually estimate. We don't necessarily, we do might do bin audits and things like that for households, but we don't really know exactly what is going out. But we do have this rough figure that a third of the food that usually um, when we're looking at Australia for example it's post-consumption waste so after we as consumers have actually purchased food then a third of what was actually going into our landfill is estimated to be organic oh, waste. Okay a third so I'm, that's, a, that's a, a quite a staggering statistic isn't it really uh, so there are different points along the life cycle where food could be wasted, could be during the production phase. Uh, what's the story with that part? Absolutely. So normally we would say that in the developing world, most food um, wasted is actually food loss. So it's actually occurring acro across that uh, supply chain. So it might be that it's the transportation's not going particularly well and you might lose a lot of crops in that kind of space. However, in our more developed countries like Australia and Canberra in particular, it really is coming down to what consumers and what householders are actually doing, what we're doing as citizens in our spaces where we're actually still generating significant amounts of food waste. What about uh, food retailers? So uh, the, the dumpsters, there's this dumpster diving yes. now. People uh, harvest food from, from dumps at the back of supermarkets. How Absolutely. Much, how, much, how much is wasted there? Well, um, we know that that's a major issue, but it's something that supermarkets have been looking at, at extremely closely because we're moving towards some regulatory, potentially, some regulatory uh, barriers that they're going to have to hop over. Um, so, for example, if we look at Europe, um, in France, they banned the fact that you could supermarkets could no longer throw throw food away. That was no longer acceptable. They would be fined. There will be massive monetary implications if they did that. So they actually then had to partner up with food redistribution organisations to actually make sure that no food was being thrown away. So dumpster divers weren't actually, could no longer be a thing. It's not, we haven't 
That hasn't happened here in Canberra. That hasn't happened in Australia yet. But it is something that we are certainly looking at moving towards. And the ACT government is looking at bringing in um, some very new um, regulation around how we could divert organics out of the mainstream uh, waste systems for the for supermarkets and for big retailers. So that's something that's coming in. Um, but at the moment, there is an awful lot of waste that's coming in. But we're also here because I do work with food redistribution agencies that once supermarkets became aware of how much they were wasting, there was much less going into food banks and to, for example, Oz Harvest being able to collect food from these uh, supermarkets. So there's actually been some flow-on effects that haven't been particularly positive for the members of our society who actually need access to fresh foods. Ah, so, well, yes, I was going to ask you then, and you've kind of touched on it there, when food is wasted, what does that mean? Where, where is it going when it's wasted? Most of it, when we're talking about food waste, is going into landfill. So there it's um, bacteria are feeding on it that then produce methane, one of our most dangerous um, greenhouse gases. So it's really bad to have organics in our landfill, um, simply covering them up. They also produce leachates, so that's sort of potentially contaminating water sources and various other things throughout the soil. So it's a really bad thing to happen. So we want to look at obviously reducing what is actually thrown away in terms of the actual value and the resources that went into that producing that food in the first place but we're also extremely interested in how we keep it out of landfill so going to composting or various other uh, things. that's part of uh, what i call the dud economy dig it up use it dig a hole and bury it absolutely yeah and what a horrible situation to be in <laughs> And uh, Ro, your your field is uh, environmental health and social health and food. What's your take on uh, food waste? Well, I totally agree with Bethany. It's such a big part of the story. But I'd bring it back to, I guess, starting from a, a health perspective, I'd like to say, first of all, let's think about what it is that's a healthy diet and then how do we... Cons- construct healthy diets how do we grow healthy diets and what portion of that waste might help us feed this growing number of people that you've already articulated and so I like to see that as part of our broader spectrum of issues around sustainability and public and environmental health. Uh, So it's a contradiction then that we have people in our society who are not eating well and at the same time we're throwing stuff we're digging a hole and burying it basically is that how you see it? Well, I mean, we've got two great um, contradictory pieces of information for just the ACT would be that we've got scores of thousands of people who have been identified of have not having access to enough food, so food insecurity. And then we've got at least 60% of our population overweight or obese, so consuming too much food or the wrong food or not in the right association with the energy expenditure for that food. And so we've already got imbalances in the system. And so it's really essential that we address that in terms of human health. But there's this huge opportunity to also look at the food and where it's coming from as far as what it means for environmental sustainability. And I think that's a really important nexus that this current summer has really brought into everyone's front of mind. Well, let, let's talk about, uh, you use the phrase uh, imbalance in the system as, and as a systems person, that uh, phrase appeals to me. Uh, 
food waste is an opportunity, is it not? There are so many things we can do. Absolutely, Rod. And I'd just like to say that here at the Multicultural Festival today, we as University of Canberra have got a tent down in Glebe Park and one of our members down there is absolutely an expert in the various things that you can do with food waste that are addressing a broad range of interesting questions. And he'd call these, this is Nanadmowski, by the way, and he would talk to you about farmer or nutraceuticals, I want to say. <laughs> so food waste products that have become resources for um, particular food additives that can enhance flavour, can enhance the nutritive quality of foods, that can feed or replace, I should say, the artificial colourings in foodstuffs and so on and so forth. And that's just a small snapshot of what food waste can oh. deliver, but I think that there's a whole heap of other well, issues that the Multicultural Festival really shines well, a light let's, on. Let's give that a quick plug because that's going on as we're going live today. The Multicultural Festival and the stall from the your friends at the University of Canberra is where is it located if we want to go and have a look? It's down in Glebe Park. So just as you head down the steps from the main centre, main... Where the big gate is. Uh, yep. Yep. We're there. And we've got some lovely students to talk to you. And we've got some lovely displays too. Coming back to food waste, I wanted to say that there's many things there that are now in our diets that were regarded as weeds, pests or possibly waste in the past. And some of these have been features in the diets of different cultures. And some of them perhaps have been in the diets of our own culture but disregarded. And this is another area of food waste which I think is really exciting. Well, uh, the, the, even the word waste is such a loaded phrase, isn't it? Now, I heard a fantastic talk by somebody from the Rocky Mountains Institute in the US and they said we've got to get rid of this phrase cradle to grave. We've got to talk about cradle to cradle. And, and, and maybe, Bethany, we can come up with a better phrase than waste. It says there is a thing of value there. Absolutely. I think that's the and the point, you know, building off what Roa said and what Nanad's doing as well down in, uh, down in our little Glebe Park hub. Um, it's really important to make sure that we're not looking at waste as being the, yeah, the end of something. This is actually a resource. So this kind of notion that the, that the cycle stops. We're actually, you know, we're all about the circular economies and circular food systems and everything at this point in time um, and really reconceptualising how we think about these foods um, and what we think of as, as waste is, is super critical. I'm just thinking then about these stories in our own cultures that um, my grandparents, for example, a lot of chocos grew very well over the pig sheds, but they would never eat a choco, ever. <laughs> um, so I grew up, but there's so many cultures and so many people who love and value chocos, but they would never have been consumed in my household. But what a great resource for uh, What was that phrase? Foods. Couldn't grow a choco vine over the dunny? <laughs> That's exactly right. But, geez, the pigs love the chocos. Um, but I think absolutely rethinking, you know, we're looking at 
potentially also looking at 3D printed foods, which is another sort of a bit future. Oh, let's let's go on to that uh, in a moment. Okay. But, but first, let's let's go back to the waste thing and and why it is that people throw stuff in the bin, which then goes into a hole in the ground. Now, your research is to social attitudes. Tell me a, a bit about that. Sure. So, lots of the research I do is actually about getting into people's homes, and and people have been extremely generous with me, and they talk me through their general food habits. They'll show me their fridges so I can have a look at what is happening in their fridges. They don't always know I'm going to ask about their fridge, but they show me nonetheless. Uh, and then quite often they keep diaries about the way that they um, that food circulates through their homes, how they decide what they're going to purchase, how they might meal plan or not, and then what they cook and then what what's there at the end of the week. So through those kind of interactions, what I find is certainly, and this is typical of all the big survey data that we've got as well, that people don't want to waste food. People actually do recognise it as a resource. They do tend to value it. But then things just happen during the week, which means that things don't get eaten or that they um, decide that they might not no longer then perhaps they're no longer healthy enough to eat perhaps the nutrient content is not as good if the carrots a bit shriveled up so they'll make choices to feed their families in ways which they think are going to provide the most amount of nutrients and love which perhaps might generate some food waste so you're saying that making people feel guilty about wasting food is not a productive way Look, I think people feel guilty, but I don't necessarily think that um, focusing on the guilt is, is a positive thing. Uh, a lot of our campaigns focus on the fact that you can save lots of money if you stop wasting food, and that is true, and I think that that is important for, for many people. But what also I tend to see is that people want to have some kind of connection beyond that to the, a different valuing of the resources in those foods. So they're going to be... Um, they don't, if we can make actual it, it fun it make it fun to avoid what we are terming waste you know make it exciting to think about well i've got this challenge of what i can do with these kinds of foods how do i actually reduce them or what how what can i do with the choco that i never <laughs> would have done before those kind of things so i think uh, making it playful and interesting for people and seeing it as something which adds to your life doesn't detract from it so put a positive on it What's the main reason why a person throws something out from their fridge? Why, why do they do that? They, it's, it's usually an issue of time and convenience, really, um, a combination whereby things have either gotten lost um, or they just haven't, they thought they were going to do something and they haven't got around to doing it. Um, plans have changed, different, you know, if you've got teenage children, you don't know who will be home at different times, whether they've got friends over, those kind of things. So the, even if you're planning very carefully for the food and you're thinking, you'll oh, freeze it if I don't get to it, quite often people just get exhausted and they, they don't necessarily invest in it. So, um, again, one of the things that I find is that when people are flexible and adaptive and, and respond to um, the food, that they actually will waste less. So we talk about it in terms of food scarcity and food abundance. Both of those things seem to actually produce really positive behaviours in terms of actually reducing the amount that's wasted. Even if you've got too much, you'll find something to do with it. Well, is there also the anxiety about the freshness of food that we've got use-by dates and we see things like salmonella and uh, we're worried about eating that uh, salad that we made a few days ago? 
Is that part of it? Absolutely part of it. Um, And uh, people are very concerned about health and hygiene. So the people that I talk to in particular who um, perhaps grew up without use-by dates and best-before dates, they're much more hooked in to um, making decisions about the health of the food and the leftovers and whether something's still going to be okay. Lots of other people are very risk-averse. And now um, uh, the messaging is usually that we should be risk-averse, that we should be a bit you know, worried about the dodgy thing that's been sitting in there for a couple of days, which might actually be okay. So I think we need, there's a real balance there, and I'm sure Ro can add some insight into here around the health yeah, kind of I w- aspects of this. I want to ask this. Ro in a moment about the con- our connection with food. But uh, before I do that, uh, Bethany, how does a person know that that thing in their fridge is safe to eat? Is there an easy way other than the blue mould and the... <laughs> Like, and, and, and they're terrible waft when you open the fridge. It's a great question. And no, I don't think there is an easy way. I mean, that's why we've got these rule of thumbs, which actually tend to make things, people get rid of things perhaps a little bit earlier than they need to, um, or that they forget to freeze things. And I think also one thing I really need to point out here is that lots of people's kitchens in a, who are living in apartments, we can see much denser living. These spaces are not necessarily geared up towards people being able to reduce their food waste. They might have very tiny freezers and fridges. They have very um, not a lot of space to store food. And, uh, and I had a student who did some research in Canberra in, in these spaces uh, a few years ago. And it really is quite tricky in some of these environments to reduce your food waste because simply of the way we've designed kitchens. I think, again, back to my grandparents, you know, the massive pantry that would come off the kitchen where all the food would be stored, um, big chest free that were, you know, again, we have to be cautious of electricity consumption, but there was all of these systems in place to ensure that nothing got wasted. You would live frugally, you would save everything. We don't have the space and resources in a lot of our housing design and apartments in particular to enable that. Uh, Yes, I'm currently reading a book about uh, Alaska, a a historical story, and it's about the there was a diphtheria outbreak, a bit off topic here, but one thing that struck me in the section I was reading last night was the Eskimos, and they do call themselves Eskimos. Uh, (laughs) If they didn't look after their food, they didn't harvest the food, they starved, and they were that close to the edge of survival the whole time. Now, now, Ro, you've got a background in primary industry, and uh, on the on the land, I know merino farmer, sheep farm. I think you said. Can you tell us a little bit your perspective on the our connection with food? How we in the city, like lettuce grows in a plastic bag, on doesn't it? <laughs> I'd like to challenge that right from the beginning, Rod. There's this lovely statistic that about five percent, and Bethany was involved in producing some of this information about five percent of our fruit and vegetables across the country are actually comes out of backyard production and for individuals including here in Canberra it can be that much more and I know I'm just shifting this from merinos which not everyone likes to eat but I will tell you a Absolutely delicious, as well as the producers of great wool. If you take the wool off, yes. <laughs> All in the correct sequence, Rod. Yeah. Um, but look, I mean, Bethany's talking about what's in the fridge. I think there's also this whole movement of growing your own food, which is worth bringing into this conversation. And we've got some terrific both backyard producers in Canberra and in our community gardens and in our city farms and, I'd like to say, in the primary producers around the ACT who you'll often have met down at the local farmer's market. 
And I think that connection with producing food is a really important part yeah, of so this whole story. There's something immediate, like we've, we've got a couple of little veggie plots in the backyard which are done very badly in the drought. But a couple of weeks ago we interviewed uh, the ACT Minister for Climate Change and Sustainability. Got that right, Shane Rattenbury. And he was talking about the uh, promoting things like community gardens and so on. We might uh, cut to a song break, I think, here on Fuzzy Logic. And when we come back, let's talk a bit more about food production and the opportunities we have to... I don't know if I even want to use the word waste, but do something about our food system. How can we improve it uh, for the land? And we were talking about where our food comes from, our connection with food. And, of course, Canberra has got a history as an agricultural area and some quite productive farming land here. Uh, Ro, do you want to tell me a bit about the, the history and local food production? Well, thanks, Rod. And it's great to sort of focus back on local food production, partly because a lot of the talk of sustainability is now making us look back at what do we produce locally, both in terms of reducing the food miles and reducing greenhouse gas emissions and waste in all sorts of, in all sorts of um, spheres. So if we make a, bit of a, um, make a bit of a focus on what is it that is happening here in the ACT and surrounding region, it's worth going back and having a look at what has been produced here in the past. And of course, pre-settlers, pre-European settlers, this was an incredibly productive area. And the early um, settler reports of indigenous food production in this area or food collection in this area gives a bit of an insight into how productive and diverse it was. Not only was there a large amount of game, there were all the tubers like the yam daisies and the bulbine lilies, there was fish through all the Malonglo rivers, and there were very large camps, of course, on areas of the Malonglo around the area of Pialago. This was such a productive area for Ngunnawal and, and other groups in this area. So when the Europeans came, of course, this is an area that they settled in fairly densely, and the early village of Cambrai, of course, set up around John Reed's church or the St John's Church in Reed, I should say, and it was built at least by the 1840s. In all of that area around the confluence of the Malonglo and then further up at the where the Queanbeyan River comes into the Malonglo, those areas were centres of intense food production. So we had Chinese market gardeners in there from very early on and they were ultimately ousted by European market gardeners. We had dairies on every farm all over the place Self-sufficiency was the name of the game. And in fact, there were more flour mills than pubs, we're told, in Queen Bin and Yes. Wow. Because we had to produce wheat. And people seem to forget that we were doing all this food production in this area. Um, because we've shifted into a, you know, a largely livestock-based um, agriculture. I want to say one more thing about wheat, and I don't know how many of the listeners remember the $2 note, but the $2 note features John Farrer, and he's got a statue there in Queanbeyan, and he's the father of Australian wheat, and I don't think many of you know that our wheat crops were fairly miserable up until about Federation, when this chap who came as a tutor to the school at Duntroon 
Duntroon being a big farming operation at the time. The Campbell family, yes. Yeah, so to the Duntroon school. He married locally and he had a little farm out near Thawa and he wrote to wheat producers all over the world. He did little experiments on his farm at Thawa until he produced a variety of wheat called Federation Wheat because he released it around about 1901 when we federated. Within three, a couple of years, this variety was widespread across the country and tripled our wheat production. And uh, this is one of these great stories from the local region that I think people just don't know about. Ah, well, I used to live in the suburb of Farrah right. as a boy. I didn't realise, I, I know a little bit about him, uh, I didn't realise it had a local connection. Right here in Canberra, it was where... Queenbian. And Queenbian. <laughs> wow. And do you know what it was about the wheat, the wheat that made it more productive? Well, it's described as being... Um, developed to be suitable for Australian conditions. Now, I'm not an agronomist. My background's actually in animal health, so I'm not going to pretend that I can tell you well, that much more about about wheat varieties, but it's it was a game-changer. Wow. Well, one thing I do notice is that modern varieties of wheat are very short. They have very short stems, where the older ones are much taller, and I think they're putting the energy into growing the seeds rather than the, the rest of the plant, mm. that what we would view as the not productive part of the plant. Uh, uh, we should do maybe an Ask Fuzzy for the, for the Canberra Times and for our rural listeners on uh, wheat and, and, and why it is that a particular type of wheat is, uh, is more productive yeah, I was just going to say on the wheat, I think what's, um, we've got the Canberra show coming up next week and I think the other thing that people perhaps are not that aware of is the history of agricultural shows in Australia and the role that they played in actually supporting the development of um, uh, the best types of crops that can grow and wheat was one. And I think there's a wheat pyramid on display at the National Museum of Australia from someone who um, exhibited regularly um, throughout, uh, I think around Cootamundra area in particular, but around Australia, that I think they were growing it around Cootamundra. Uh, and it's a really great sort of little time capsule around what shows were used for, that they were actually used for the improvement of, of breeding in animals and in, in horticultural products. Um, so those those agricultural shows would be a really important part of the Australian fabric, wouldn't it? Because where all the farming communities would come together and just not to socialise as well, but to talk about oh this worked or that didn't work and. Yeah, that's their history. That's that's the genesis. I mean, I also come from a family who were um, a champion food exhibitors uh, regularly at the Berry Show. Um, so that's part of my um, background as well. The shows are critical in, in my kind of um, family in terms of uh, settlement within on the south coast of New South Wales. But they played critical roles, and there's, there's some really interesting research around the, the roles that they've played. And, and it's interesting the way, the way that we treat the shows today is very, very different. Yes, it's... Yes, it's, it's especially for this large the city ones like the Canberra ones, but so let's just go back to the local food production and what sort of opportunities do we have around Canberra? Because there's land like the CSIRO development area on in Ginandera, and that's going to be subsumed by housing, I believe, which just seems absolutely insane to me, because that that is quite good soil and it has reasonable access to water. One of the most treasured spots, I think, in the ACT has to be the area around Pialago. And I'm going to bring us back to that. And I made that comment that both for Indigenous um, 
people in the area and for early settlers it was really a focus of, of productive food but it was because we had those alluvial banks right along the Malonglo and of course come 1965 we did something to that land as well it all went under Lake Burley Griffin and it does change a bit of the story of what our food producing resource is in the ACT but I wanted to say also that in that early phase of the ACT, there was a huge um, emphasis on being self-sufficient as well. And that was something that was was a feature in how the land around Pialago was used in terms of dairies and fruit and vegetable production, that, that dairy flat roads, and you'll remember you know, what has progressively changed over there in the Pialago area. But that focus changed partly because we had the Murrumbidgee irrigation area that set up pretty close to that period when we did have the establishment of the ACT and we started to look further afield to the greater region and so although we still have production within the ACT obviously our population is really large and it's drawing its food from much further afield. Now if we wanted to sort of talk about local food production and keep within the ACT we need to talk about the. There's been egg production, there's certainly meat production, wool production, but there's also non food agricultural production too. It's not all for oh, food. Oh, like wool, for example. Yeah. yeah, and also horses or hay. Well, or, what or can we do in Canberra? Like, I've already given you my opinion about the encroachment of housing development on what is productive land. What, what can we do about that? Well, I think what we already have done is really interesting. And I'm going to hand to Bethany here because at the point in about the 70s that we became more interested in these issues, certain groups started becoming active in the Canberra region and really spearheaded some changed thinking around food production. Thanks, Ro. I think, yes, um, so in particular we're talking about the Canberra Organic Growers Society, which came about in the late, in late 70s and really sort of took off in, in the 1980s. So it was a group of people who were coming together to think very differently about food and how and the, they had a very interesting and eclectic approach um, to what was important from a from a sort of health perspective uh, and the health being both individual bodies as well as the land uh, and then really I guess what I know and Ro can add in some more things if she knows more about this this background is that well, my particular area of interest has, has been when the COGS has actually become involved in the community gardens that really started being offered around the, the uh, around Canberra region from the early 2000s. So there became growing interest in the potential for the for people to actually come into community areas and produce food that they couldn't necessarily grow particularly productively in their own backyards. So there's one at uh, Dairy Flat in Pialago, one of those. I think there's another one on, is it Coulter Drive, another community garden? Yeah, there's about, I think there's about uh, 12 in, in the region at the moment. But they do it does fluctuate a little bit because they um, have had to close some when there's not you know, a great deal of interest. And then they were meant to be opening new ones in all new suburbs that were actually going to be being developed. So it is something that the ACT government has certainly looked at and they commissioned a report that we produced at the University of Canberra in 2012 around um, community gardens and their futures and what we'd need to do um, to actually get more of these happening in, in, the, in the region. But they are, you know, quite, there's only small numbers of, of people can actually participate in these particular areas, but they've been critical in actually changing the fabric of some communities 
communities uh, and giving people access to the sorts of things that they might not be able to grow. So particularly uh, people from different cultural backgrounds who might not be able to access the foods that have come from their own traditions. So if our listener is interested in, in getting involved with a community garden, how would they go and what sort of thing would they do what would, well, how, they can, how would that work yeah they could get onto the canberra organic growers society um, webpage and have a look at where the gardens actually are and they can um, contact the conveners for each of those gardens there tends to be a bit of a waiting list um, and there are there are community gardens that operate outside of that framework as well. There's lots of local churches that have them on their, in their particular grounds. Um, I'm a member of a Cogs Garden, at, which is actually located on, at Kayleen High School. So it's on Kayleen High School land, but it's a Cogs community garden. Uh, and there's, there's, there's several of these around. The other thing that we have is also land share. So a lot of people who... So again, when Canberra was first set up, the idea was that everybody's backyard would be big enough for food production, a, a clothesline, um, and some chicken and fruit trees uh, so there are a lot of those kind of backyards in the inner north and inner south but a lot of them are actually people who might be might be um, homes to people who can't necessarily look after the gardens so we've seen this movement to land share where you get you, you invite other people to come and help you look after your garden and share the produce. Uh, chook, chooks and uh, tomatoes under the hill's hoist. What, <laughs> what, 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 a, what a great notion. We, we did have chooks in our backyard. We had to, uh, we, we don't have them now, unfortunately, but I do like chooks because you can, they, they produce manure, fantastic eggs, and all that kitchen scrap that just would yeah. otherwise go in the bin. I think we might. Uh, since we like birds, we like chickens. I'm going to stop for a little song break here on Fuzzy Logic and our guest today, uh, Professor Bethany Turner and Professor uh, Roe McFarlane from the University of Canberra. Now, we were talking about food and how it just magically appears in the supermarket, wrapped in plastic and all cut, and all the funny-shaped carrots have been taken away uh, and stuck in maybe bins. I don't know where they go. But uh, that's about the connection of ourselves to food. And one way of making a connection to food is to actually talk to a farmer and a farmer's market. And I don't know how much we do that in Canberra now, but farmer's markets, row what... How do you see them? What's their role? Well, I think they're a fantastic resource. And, of course, we've seen them spread across the country. But the farmers' markets in Canberra started in the early 2000s with, well, the epic one was the first one, and it started as a project from the Rotary Club of Hall responding to the plight of farmers during the millennium drought, needing some assistance and it's obviously evolved to something that many of us spend our Saturday mornings at getting to know our local farmers and getting the benefit both of fresh local produce but also that social connection and I think that's a really important and powerful driving force in our well-being. Well that, that, that connection is so important because when something is abstract you, you don't have any ownership of it. You don't feel any responsibility for it. So if I pick up something that's grown in terrible circumstances and I chuck it in the bin and it floats away down the river, not my problem. It's what the somebody else's problem field. Mm, but, but for the farmer, what's it offering them, the, the primary producer? What's it offering them? Well, without going into the whole relationship between producers and retail chains, it gives a direct 
opportunity to sell to customers. And it also gives an opportunity to explain sometimes the effort or, in fact, the production system. So we've got producers at the farmer's market who are organic producers, biodynamic producers, people who are practising regenerative farming practices. Many of these great innovations that we have so many people in our district operating under and being able to explain that to the consumer and I think this is a really important part too because as we talk more broadly about sustainability not only do we want health for the people we want food that's produced in a sustainable and environmentally sustainable and socially sustainable um, manner and we want to understand that connection and possibly be willing to pay a different price for it and I think it's really important having those conversations to make those connections. Yes, pay pay the producers a fair price so this constant pressure uh, do you agree on from the big supermarkets down down go the prices and we're constantly screwing the farmers, the producers and what effect would that have on the land? Tell me some good news, Ro. What, tell me some, some happy things that are happening in uh, sustainable farming, sustainable agriculture. Well, I think we need to take our hat off to the farmers. And I'd say it in, in the most um, celebratory way. We've got enormous challenges. We've just faced the bushfires, which, of course, have physically removed many people's um, infrastructure and put them right on a back foot but we've also been facing a drought we're facing long-term climate change and we're changing diets and and um, supply chain issues so that the farmers themselves have to adapt and people have been looking at their land and addressing either the state of the physical environment so their soil health their hydration or the carbon that's being sequestered in the soil and coming up with really great approaches to both producing food and to restoring the land. And I think we need to sing this, these praises more widely because we think of food sometimes, as you said, coming in little plastic containers, but it is the produce of some of the greatest innovation going on in Australia today. Well, you remind me of, I heard, a uh, went to a talk, an Aboriginal elder did a welcome to country, and they talked about themselves as being the custodians of the land, not the owners of the land. Mm. And there's a fantastic quote out of that movie. Remember Crocodile Dundee? <laughs> and, and Which you wouldn't think of necessarily coming up with a profound comment, but there's a line in there, and he says, uh, us arguing over who owns the land is like a couple of dogs, uh, like, sorry, a couple of fleas arguing over who owns the dog. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> so so su sustainability, and are, are there some particular examples that you want to mention, Ro, that, that you've seen? Uh, and I, I love the idea that you want to celebrate the good things that they are doing. Look, there are farmers for climate action who are really addressing climate change and farm um, livelihood sustainability as well as carbon sequestration. There are the regenerative farmers who I'd like to remind listeners that in those production systems, livestock are critical for both consuming the grass, for producing manure, for maintaining soil health and for enabling carbon sequestration. There are um, 
the now you've caught me on well, on <laughs> well let, let, let's flip back to to bethany because we were talking about food waste right mm. and what happens and 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 so Roy, you've talked about food as being an opportunity to to for nutrition for people who need it but what about food waste as an opportunity for farming and, and for the stuff that can go back into the pro- productivity of the soil do you see much there there's certainly opportunities um, there. I'll just say that, you know, in terms of, um, I'll come back to that, Rod, but when Rose saying, you know, we should celebrate these farmers, I think that, and, and that farmers markets and that contact with the producer and or when we're producers ourselves in our backyards, that all of the evidence suggests that, you know, that we then start to understand we have a different value that's not an economic value on these products as we were talking about before so again lots of the stories people share with me about their about their experiences at the farmers markets are actually taking their children along and talking to the farmer about well um what 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 climatic and weather impacts have um what are the impacts on the food that you've got for us this week and talking having those conversations with their with the families so that people are actually connected not only to the food but the food connects them to the whole the whole way of life so um, um, actually exposing them to these amazing things that many of our farmers are actually doing and farmers markets provide that kind of conduit to enable that that to happen but food wa- and and then I think we get less food waste the again the data's hazy right we're on fuzzy logic um, and it is really that all the data around food waste and food loss is hazy because this is a tricky area to work in but the um, the evidence that we do have is that the higher value that people place on the food and the people who've invested in that food and that they're um, whether they've grown it themselves or they've engaged with the producer they're more likely to avoid that's more likely to be used actually eaten not not thrown away um, but yes it could then become a resource and we do see absolutely some in, I mean unfortunately we see crops getting ploughed back into lands that don't necessarily need to be ploughed back in because they might have been spoiled or they might not be quite right for um, for the market and that's not always good but yes they can be used productively for the land as well I, I, I like what you said there though that there's value in things that's just not monetary value it's not just about it's not just the economy stupid is it Absolutely. Well, I mean, that's exactly right. And I think, you know, um, J.K. Gibson Graham, they say that, you know, we're, we're all focused on this capitalist, you know, economic logic. But actually, the, the things that people spend the most amount of time in and that produce the most amount of value are things outside of the capitalist economic system. That's actually where most of us are investing a lot of our time and energy. Um, and so we actually need to recognise that, that value is actually not economic value. Uh, and, 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 and speaking of the market, which is supposedly the perfect mechanism for efficiency, I recall somebody telling me that during a trucker's strike, they had truckloads on the eastern end of the Nullarbor carrying oranges and truckloads on the western end of the Nullarbor carrying oranges, heading <laughs> in opposite directions. Yes, <laughs> yes. But now, I had an interesting conversation uh, a couple of years ago with the people who were promoting the value of cooperatives. Now, the cooperatives, remember the Dairy Farmers Co-op? Mm-hmm. What's, do, you, do you know anything about co-ops? What, what's happened to them? Are they, do we still have them? Egg certainly, farmers? Certainly in Gippsland, the dairy cooperatives have largely gone, and that's, you know, that's been a huge tragedy i think i mean we used to have farmers controlling the price of milk the i guess the whole of the post-production chain through their membership of the cooperatives but that's gone 
And so isn't that a case of uh, an imbalance of power? So you've got the big supermarket chains, really, really powerful, and then you've got individual consumers. And I don't understand why the farmers allowed it to go or do they have any choice? It's... uh, Maybe we should get someone on uh, to, who, who's... I think it'd be worth exploring. No, no, no. I just think, I mean, we've got to remember, it's it's a tough gig being a farmer, I think, you know, and mm. there's so many pressures that come into play that, um, you know, I don't think anyone just let it happen. Um, they were hard-fought battles, I think. Well, again, again, the connection to, to the land, and we've talked about Indigenous history mm. here around Canberra and, and across Australia, and it sometimes occurs to me... You put any of us three in a paddock out there, no cafes, no supermarkets, uh, we would starve pretty quickly. And the fact that the Indigenous people could live off the land and do quite well, uh, I just think is an astonishing feat. Enormous sophistication for them to do that. And I, you talk about celebrating what farmers doing. I, I'd like to also celebrate what our Indigenous people did and what we might learn from them that's a bit of a absolutely that's a bit of a speech from me there (laughs) look i i totally agree and one of the things that i'd like to say when we're talking about the local food bounty that indigenous local um people to the act and canberra region had we decimated that so quickly and i think that's you know part of the big tragedy that we've got to address it's a biodiversity um, loss issue as well as a food and a sustainability knowledge. issue. I mean, the Molonglo was devoid of native fish by the time the ACT was set up. You know, we had outfished it. We had removed many of the native species. We'd eaten our way through the koalas. We would put bounties on them and bounties on wombats. And so we, we very, very rapidly in this area, as in other areas, transformed what was an absolutely rich area to quite a reduced ecosystem uh, well you and resilience uh, being a system person i think of resilience is there's a few facets to it but uh, many different lines many different ways of supporting the system so uh, a fragile system is one that has only one mm. strand to it, and you knock that strand out you know there's a couple of grams in your body that if that fails you'll be gone That's in a matter of seconds <laughs> That's your heart valve yeah uh, Oh, look, and, and that's we were talking about some of the great farmer innovations in the area before, and you'll know Maloon Creek and the rehydration and based on Peter Andrews' nat- natural sequence farming and the great work of Tony Coots there. But all of this work of revisioning our agricultural land, bringing it back to something closer to that resilient and incredibly healthy landscape that we first arrived at as Europeans is incredibly important and it's at the basis of much of what Landcare is doing. So farmers groups right across the country and I think this is part of that great celebration of hope but the connection that I want to make for this particular day and because we're here at the Multicultural Festival as University of Canberra is to make us start bringing those different parts of this story 
the waste story, the environmental sustainability, the local food production, the human health stories together. Because we have got this challenge to really bring these things into the same conversation as we're doing here. Thanks, Rod. Well, <laughs> I, I think uh, the industrial system has a lot to answer for. So, and, and to use, a, dare I say, a Marxist term, uh, alienation. And the, the factory worker would on, be on a production line. They would pick up an item. They would do something to it, put it back on the production line. And then where it came from or where it went to, nobody, they would never see it. And in a way, the way we consume food is a bit like that. We walk into the shop, we pick up something off the shelf, and downstream, upstream, it's largely invisible. And alienation is probably the right, it's probably a good term, is it? I think it's not a bad term, um, Rod. I think that that's quite true for a lot of people who um, that, are, that are both producers but also consumers. But I think that we also see a lot more, ment- you know, we see a lot more people wanting to know more right now um, who actually want to actually shift that and change those, those dynamics. So I think when you walk into the supermarket now, you do get a choice of ugly food. And for, for example, this is one example. Um, but of course, often that ugly food is wrap, cling wrapped to differentiate it from the rest of it. So you have a choice then of will I take the plastic wrap thing or will I purchase the, the product that I can put in my own little bag. Um, so there's, there's, a tra- there's so many trade-offs that occur in the food system. So we have lots of hope, but we have lots of you know, problems, I think, as well, that we want to bring these, these well, various areas together to, challenge, you know, to, to yeah. work through the challenges. I'm pretty down on the big supermarkets, but they're also part of the the solution. I think you hinted at something just there, uh, Bethany, and that's labelling of the origin of where fruit, vegetables come from. But it's stuff in cans even, I guess. When you pick up a can, you guess it just well, it comes off the shelf, doesn't it? Well, I mean, it's still labelled. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Sorry. Yes. But I was just going to say about food miles is an interesting one because, you know, we know in Canberra that actually one of the most the biggest contributors to our greenhouse um, gas emissions or our carbon emissions is actually us travelling to the shops in our cars to buy a few things. <laughs> so um, it doesn't matter just where the food comes from. It matters how we get there to purchase our food. So it's a whole systems approach that we need when we're thinking about sustainable food systems. And I think there's a lot of help out there too to navigate this. And I'd just draw the listeners who aren't familiar with the Lancet Eat, well, the Eat Lancet Commission on Planetary Health and the Planetary Health Diet. It was launched in 2019. Have you spoken about that? The Lancet as in the medical journal? Yes. So the commission... uh, group together experts across the range of human health through to farming systems and environmental sustainability and produced a diet that would be a reference diet for all people on the planet that would address health, address the capabilities of the planet and be equitable so that we could feed everyone. And it's certainly a great resource to start from. It needs to be modified for local food production limitations, cultural differences in diets, but it's just a great example of the fact that our science, fuzzy or otherwise, is producing a lot of guidelines and bringing these different strands together. Yes, well, that, uh, what constitutes a healthy diet is a really complicated question, isn't it? And I interviewed, uh, if I can get his soon, his name right, Demosthenes Panagiotakos from the Athlos Project uh, and the study of global food eating habits and health. 
we're almost out of time here on Fuzzy Logic. <laughs> We've been talking food. And get yourself down to the Multicultural Festival. And if you do come down, enter our raffle to get a $50 voucher for food of your choice from a local producer by engaging in some of our um, wonderful displays and discussions with our students. Well, I, I'm going to uh, drop over after the show and say g'day and uh, say hello to Nanad Namovsky, who is my friend. I think he's over there at yep. the moment. G'day, Nanad. Hope you're listening. And now uh, we have a column in the Canberra Times and today was going to be one about sustainability would you believe and our writer posed the question uh, why don't we have a sustainability indicator that we can just sort of follow like we slavishly follow gdp meaningless <laughs> meaningless beyond us <laughs> anyway i'm on a rant now and i have another column in the works which is from an engineer who specializes in building structures for uh, earthquakes and he talks about making them uh, resilient uh, bridges in particular, mm -hmm. a way of anchoring them, stopping them from falling down, which we don't like very <laughs> much. Plenty more coming up on Fuzzy Logic. So, uh, uh, Bethany Turner, thanks for your company today. And Roe McFarlane, uh, lots of fun. And we'll see you at the Multicultural Festival at Glee Park. Park. Got to go. Catch you later.